Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 24 of the podcast. This is Mmm, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts, and connect with our socials on Instagram and Twitter at ThisIsMPod. Uh, you can shoot us an email at ThisIsMPod at Gmail. And yeah, but bop bop boop bop bow. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, actually, stream my music on Spotify. I have a playlist of all my original music, of all my original music, all my original music from 2019 on Spotify in one convenient playlist called Gentleman Caller. Just look up M, the heir apparent. That's M, the letter M. The H-E-I-R Apparent on Spotify and stream Gentleman Caller, the featured playlist on my profile. Woo! Uh, had some strange encounters at the laundromat this morning. Um, uh, and I was telling myself right before I co- recorded that there were actually two. Oh, last week I had this encounter. All right, so there's a few things. So um, I live in a neighborhood that has become increasingly gentrified, but... Uh, you know, when I first moved in here, it was a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood. And there's a laundromat right on the corner that I go to that has been, mm, what do I want to say? It's, mm, it's murky sometimes. And over the last, let's see, I've lived, I've lived in my neighborhood for probably about 11 years or so. And I've been going there for quite a while. And, um, you know, for some reason, I think it's a really good laundromat, but the truth is, it's not. I would say half the time I go there, I go to pick up my laundry, and the laundry machine was not working, you know? Like, maybe it's my own fault, because I sort of set my laundry going, I sort of kick the machines off, and then I leave. I'm not the person, I, like, I do not hang out at the laundromat, um, mostly because I live literally right around the corner, so um, it's convenient for me to go home and spend the time there. So maybe it's my own fault, but plenty of times I go back and the laundry, the the machine has like shut off or something, or the water hasn't drained from the washing machine or, um, the heater never heated up. So my wet clothes have just been tumbling for 30 minutes or whatever it is. Um, and for the last few weeks now, consistently there's been a problem, which fucking sucks. So it's like, I literally just today I go and, um, you know, one of my loads was washed and the other one just never even ran. So, um, you know, need to fuck your whole shit up. Cause then you got one thing drying while another one's washing. And then when you go to pick up the clothes that are dry, you got to go home and take those home. And then you got to come back and pick up the other drying. So it just, it's kind of a hiccup in your morning. And does it bother me? Yes. But do I still keep going? Of course, because it's close and convenient. And even though the service isn't perfect, uh, convenience trumps everything. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I cannot imagine ever taking a stand. I, I can't imagine another location, even if they were consistent, that would be worth the hassle of schlepping my stuff over there. Um, you know, and the truth is it doesn't really impede my schedule that much. But anyway, so what I'm saying is I'm confessing that this place annoys the fucking shit out of me on a consistent basis. And yet, like three weeks ago, I was there. All right, now now all my thoughts are coming together. Because I was saying I live in a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood. It's been gentrified to shit over the last like four to five years. Um, but um, f- for a long period of time, I was the only white person I saw at this laundromat. And... 
for some reason, I feel kind of territorial and protective of it. You know what I'm saying? And so as the areas become gentrified, I really haven't seen a change in the population that goes to this laundromat. But there was this cracker-ass cracker there about three or four weeks ago. And this was a total fucking hipster-ass white boy with his fucking hipster glasses and crazy-ass fucking undershave haircut that was combed over to one side. And... uh just skinny as fuck. Do you know what I'm saying? And he was getting into it with my boy who works at the goddamn laundromat. And this guy is super friendly. He's been there every day that I'm there from open until close. Do you know what I'm saying? Doing other people's laundry, doing a shit ton of laundry for other people, folding mountains of clothes for families that have like eight or ten kids. Do you know what I'm saying? Fixing the laundry machines. And yeah, dude, shit's fucked up over there. But it kind of reminds me of like when I worked at a uh, 24-hour gym. Dude, when you think about it, if you have a, even if it's, uh, if you have a laundry machine that's at a laundromat, you know, how often do you do laundry at home? Do you do maybe two loads a week? Usually one though, right? Maybe two. When you think about a laundry machine, do you know how much work it gets? I mean, the reason I think about working at the gym is you have a treadmill, right? You know, let's say you run on your treadmill three, four days a week. Dude, maybe you even run on it seven days a week. But if you are at like a 24-hour fitness or any sort of gym that gets a lot of foot traffic, that thing gets, you know, as much use in a single day as you might put on your treadmill in a month, you know, or a few weeks. Do you know what I'm saying? And everything has a lifespan. And if you're putting that much work on it, it's just going to wear out faster. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm not, and also it's not yours. So people mistreat the equipment all the goddamn time. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what you could do to a laundry machine, but, like, you know, dude, and by the way, what the fuck are people doing? Because, like, I go over there and, like, the lids of the laundry machines will be fucking dented in, and I'm like, what the fuck? Are people jumping uh, jumping up and down on this shit? Um, but, uh, yeah, so anyway, I think this guy had a similar experience that I had, which is he, he'd probably dropped off his laundry left and come back, and his clothes weren't dry or whatever, and the guy was throwing a fucking temper tantrum in the middle of the goddamn laundromat. And I was just coming in at the tail end of it where, like, you know, the guy who worked there had basically told him, well, I've kind of done everything I can do for you. I can, you know, run the machine for you again for free. But that's basically, I mean, outside of that, I'm sorry. I, I feel bad. You know, yeah, I, it's, it, it's, I, I, I concede that it's a problem. But in terms of reconciling the situation, there's really nothing I can do. You know, so if we're both facing the reality of the situation, how about I run this thing for you again? And we both go about our lives. And this guy was totally... You know, like, I understand being disappointed. I totally fucking get that. But, you know, throwing a hissy fit or, you know, when you're standing across from someone who's doing what they can to help you, I mean, how pissed are you going to get? And so the guy who works, like, sort of runs the machine and walks away, and as this guy's gathering his stuff again, he's just muttering to himself, like, piece of shit, motherfucking, I'm never coming back here again, blah, 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 just talking to himself. And I fucking hated this guy. And that just stuck in my mind, because on the one hand, I knew exactly how he felt. Like, I'm consistently annoyed and disappointed with this establishment also. But there was something about this cracker-ass, white-bread motherfucker being in my laundromat that made me just go, this motherfucker, dude. And I was judging and hating him so hard. Even though I completely related to how he was feeling, I fucking never felt further away from someone than I did against that guy in my life. I strongly disliked him. I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen him since. 
it's kind of funny though. I mean, you know, there's people who kind of come and go at the laundromat, you know, like I'm a creature of habit. I usually go at the same time every week, you know, on the same day, same time every week. And there used to be people I saw on a consistent basis. There was this one older lady. Her name was Lauren. I think she was like, uh, she had to have been like in her late eighties or whatever, but I used to see her and we were friendly with each other and we would talk and she would tell me about uh, going back to Cleveland to see her family and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I'm convinced she died. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that she's passed away. Um, so that's kind of sad. I mean, yeah, people come and go. I mean, I'm kind of hesitating whether I should just follow my thought or finish my other, um, finish my other point about the laundromat the other encounter I had but it is sad when you see people in your life that you sort of touch base with on a regular basis and then they just sort of disappear especially when they're old when they're uh older or elderly um because you always think oh maybe that person died I remember when I worked at restaurants um my last restaurant job was at this kind of you know decent French restaurant um tiny place in the Bay Area and we had this uh, older gentleman who would come in, and I, I do, I think he might still be living, but he was 100 years old. His name was literally Johnny Walker, and he was 100 years old. His wife, who was also old, would drive them to the restaurant, and you're thinking, you need your license taken away, because they're driving like a boat. Like, all old people drive huge-ass cars, you know? The most, uh, the most, uh, uh, the least reliable drivers are driving the vehicles that have the potential to do the most damage. Like if they run into the front of a, a convenience store, like they tend to do, but they're driving a goddamn boat. And, uh, I would always see her pull up to the curb. She would pull up curbside at the restaurant. And you know, we just had these huge windows in the front. So you could see everything that was going on. And the minute they pulled up, my job was to walk outside and open the door for Johnny Walker. And she would drop him off at the curb while she went and parked. You know, she was uh, definitely more mobile uh, than he was. So she would drop him off, park the car, and then come meet up with him. And they always sat at the same table in the corner. And for, this guy moved like a goddamn glacier. I mean, you've never seen anyone walk slower. And for whatever reason, instead of just taking a seat by the door, their table was in the back of the goddamn restaurant. So he literally chose to traverse the longest distance. And the minute that car pulled up, I was out of commission for about 10 minutes because my job was to open the door for Johnny Walker and basically escort him to his table. And when he first started coming there, he would not let anyone help him. You know, my job was because he would kind of teeter and totter and he would sort of, you know, he would set benchmarks for himself. Like from the curb to the door is eh, 10 feet. So he would do what he could to get to the door. But you could tell by the time he got to the door and could put his hand on the handle and sort of rest for a second, it was a relief. And then from there, there was like, you know, there was just, you could tell there were separate benchmarks that he would use as he, you know, moved uh, from the front door or literally from the car to his table. And it was even kind of funny because as he would move through the restaurant, he would put his hand on the back of people's chairs, even if they were sitting in them, because he, he needed what he needed to stabilize himself. And you would just see this wave of people in the restaurant who didn't see him coming. All of a sudden, they would feel this kind of hand. On, it didn't matter if they were leaning into the back of their chair. They would just feel this hand, like, brush against their back and hold onto their chair. So people would kind of go, oh, turn around and see an old man and go, oh, Jesus Christ. But, um, yeah, so my job was to literally uh, escort him. Visually, I was just sort of escorting him to his table in the event that he, like, lost balance, I could catch him or whatever. 
And over the few years that I worked there, at first, nobody could touch him. And he would even kind of like, if you, if you went to like touch him, he would like go, ah, and like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the word. He would start, he would uh, snap his hand away from you, you know? And I, I respect that. It makes sense. You're an old man. You don't necessarily want strangers touching you. But over the few years, his mobility was ever decreasing. Do you know what I'm saying? And I would say for the last year or six months that I worked there, he needed my help. And so he went from being this person who, regardless of how you know precarious he appeared on his feet, he didn't want anyone helping him, to sort of acclimating to the fact that he, he needed some assistance. And so he would take my arm and I would walk him to, the back, to his table in the back. I would sit him down. They would always get the same wine, a glass of red for him and a glass of white for her. And so by the time she parked the car and came, their wine was already on the table. He had already had a couple sips of his red wine. And it was such a strange, like, it's so strange when you reach that age because you think everything is so difficult. I mean, the production involved in just going out and, and, you know, eating dinner at a restaurant. They would usually always get the same thing. And they would order Johnny. And the minute I left the table... They would get like some salad appetizers, they would get a main course, and then they would split a dessert. And by the time their wine was on the table and I took their order, before their appetizers hit the table, Johnny Walker was asleep. And the wife would just sit across him, kind of looking around the restaurant, drinking her wine. The food would come, Johnny Walker would come, take a few bites, never finish anything that was in front of him. And then the minute I cleared those plates and waited for the entrees, he was asleep again. Then the entrees would come, he'd wake up, have a couple bites of his food, never finish anything. And when I cleared those plates and they waited for dessert, Johnny Walker was asleep again. And about halfway through dessert, after Johnny Walker had had a couple bites, he would fall asleep again. I would bring the check, his wife would pay, and wake him up to leave. And he never finished anything. If he's still alive, the dude is... There's got to be 105, but... If I was a betting man, I would say that he passed away. But, uh, yeah, God, it's so, it's so funny when you work at a restaurant and you have a lot of regulars, there's literally people that you see more consistently than your own family, especially if your family lives at a distance, which mine has. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, any number of insignificant people in my life that I've still seen way more than any, any member of my family, maybe in my entire life, um, but especially at restaurants. And I would always be surprised because, you know, there'd be a time where someone was literally at your restaurant the same day every week and the owner would look at me and go, oh, I wonder what ever happened to that couple. And I was like, oh shit, I completely forgot about them. Or there were people that you saw every week that outside of work, you never thought about them once until you saw them at the restaurant. And you just know, if this person stopped coming here, I would literally never think about them again. I see them the same day, the same time, every week, and if they stopped coming in once, I would never think about them again. It's weird how that works. My other experience at the laundromat, though, was, um, like I said, I've lived in my neighborhood for probably about 11 years, and when when I first moved in, it was mostly uh, black and Hispanic, and over the years, it's become gentrified. But um, I'm trying to be sparse on details. I don't want anyone to fucking triangulate my location. But uh, there's a few corner stores nearby uh, at the nearest intersection uh, to where I live. And uh, one of them is very clean. Uh, it used to be owned by this Eritrean family. Uh, I think they've sold it to somebody else. But um, 
they didn't take any fucking shit. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's not a great neighborhood. There, you know, there's, I mean, when I first moved in, we had stuff stolen out of our backyard a few times. Um, there was a family living with some younger girls. I had a bike stolen out of the back. The girls had their bikes stolen out of the back at some point. I was literally, I think on another recent episode, I was talking about this podcast I used to do. I had this dude, Graham Patzner, over my house. Graham is, uh, he's in a local band called Whiskerman. God, funny story about that dude. I literally knew, before I even played, I mean, he's kind of, um, I don't know, he's a popular guy in the local music scene. And even when I first met him, he was already pretty well-established locally. But when I met him, I wasn't even playing music. Um, He just happened to know some people that I worked at a restaurant who, he happened to know some people that I worked with at a restaurant over like 10, like, dude, like when I first moved out to the Bay Area. So I was kind of um, an acquaintance with his before I even started playing music locally. But anyway, I started playing some shows and he actually hooked me up with like one of my first gigs at a place called The Stork Club in Oakland. Um, But uh, I've just kind of stayed friendly with him over the years. And when I was doing this podcast, he was one of the people who came over and did one of our episodes. And when he was over here, we were in the middle of our interview. You know, and I live in this cottage in someone's backyard separated from the main house. And as we're doing our interview... He fuck like we're we're fucking sitting there talking. All of a sudden, I feel I hear the door to my place jiggle, you know, and I sort of notice it. And I don't even I don't know if we acknowledge it, but I remember about thirty seconds go by, and we're sort of sort of still continuing the conversation. And I and I interrupt us, and I say, "Hey, Graham, can you hold on one second? And I I go outside, and you know, I walk up to the gate, and I open the gate, and I see this guy walking away from the house, like up our driveway, and I go hey, motherfucker, and he turns around, because I realized this guy was just in our backyard, like, uh, trying the door to my place, seeing if, seeing if he could enter it, and I go, I've seen you, motherfucker, and if you come back here, I'll fucking leave you buried back here. Do you understand? And he just, and, you know, not that I really struck fear into the heart of the guy, but he just goes, okay, and we fucking never saw him again. But, uh... Yeah, not that he was scared of my demeanor or presence. I think he was just more scared that, oh shit, I've been spotted. But this was fucking broad daylight. Do you know what I'm saying? This wasn't under the cover of darkness. This guy was just, he literally must have hopped the goddamn fence and just tried my door. What if it had opened and I was just sitting there with Graham? Like, what if I hadn't locked the door and this guy just opens the fucking door and he and I are just sitting there doing a podcast? It would have been good content, I guess. But Jesus Christ. Yeah, dude, I don't even know if he remembers that. Um, crazy story, though. But anyway, what does, that have to do with, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, so there's this population of people who basically hang out in front of the other grocery store, or not grocery store, but convenience store, right? So you can probably picture this. There's two convenience stores that are opposite sides of the street. One is very clean. The owner doesn't take any goddamn shit. The other place is fucking decrepit. You know, I've heard rumors that the owners sell drugs out of the back. They have a, um, they have a, you call it a butchery? They sell, they have like a deli. They sell meats and shit. It's a goddamn nightmare. It looks like a fucking, dude, it looks disgusting. Like, why would anyone buy their goddamn meat from this place? The place is in constant disarray. I think they actually had like an inspection recently. They had to completely like fucking, basically power wash the entire goddamn place. And so I think they're trying to clean their act up. But because they've been so lax, the population of people who hang out there and shop there is just, they're from a fucking completely different world. And there's probably about a dozen people who've literally been on that street corner out front of it, just drinking, smoking, um, just loitering for like the last like decade. 
And out of all these people, you know, and it, it doesn't really bother me, but I, I, you know, and because they've seen me in the neighborhood, like everybody knows who I am. Like I just sort of walk around, they see me go to the laundromat. They know I live around here. I'm always very respectful. Um, um, you know, I've, I've never had a problem. Um, there's one woman who's been out there for the last like 10 or 11 years who I don't know what it is, but there's something about her that's just different. And it's something with her personality. It's something about, I don't know. I I think on another episode I was talking about like Robert Downey Jr. And there's just some actors or whatever that we believe in. You know, there's people that no matter how down and out they get, we're just rooting for them for some reason. And I think I was talking about this in therapy one time about this woman, but she just has a spark. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying I want bad things for people, but it just is the case that when you look at some of these people who are on the street, they just have no spark. Like they're, you just know, you just know that they're doomed. You know, there's, you just get the sense that there's really no hope for them. And it doesn't mean that that's the actual case. I mean, sometimes the people who seem the most lost end up making a turnaround and the people who show the most promise, you know, don't change, um, for a variety of reasons. But there's something about this woman that I just, I don't know. I always felt endeared to her. And she was always kind of outgoing and had a personality and you could just, I don't know, there was just something about her that I felt endeared to. And, uh, you know, I would brush shoulders with these people. I would have conversations with them sometimes. Some of them would ask me for money on a consistent basis. If I had it, I would give it to them. And, um, yeah, there's something about me and this one that just sort of clicked or whatever. And so we've always kind of enjoyed seeing each other. And if I had some money and she needed it, I would give it to her or I'd buy her a burrito or I'd buy her, uh, you know, I'd buy her something to drink or whatever it is. But um, I saw her recently, like six months ago, and her son had died, who I had just met for the first time. I didn't even know she had children. And then all of a sudden, I meet her son, who's just out there. You know, I walk out of the store, she's talking to some young man, and she goes, oh, this is my son. And I was like, oh, wow. And so I met him. And then the next time I see her, maybe like two weeks later, she goes, oh, my son died. I guess he was shot. He was doing some sort of drug deal or something, and he got shot. But, I mean, the, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to know, you know, <laughs> it's hard to know how these things happen because, you know, you see someone for a decade and when they're living on the street, um, you kind of see this wave, you know, like there would be a year or two where she looked awful. And then for a while, she looked like she was kind of getting her shit together. You know, she would put on weight, she'd look a little cleaner and she was still out there hanging out in front of the place all the time, but you can just get the sense sometimes there's an ebb and flow. Like sometimes things get really fucking hairy and then sometimes someone's kind of maintaining a little bit better. But leading up to this event, she just looked awful. And especially in the last like six months or so since her son died, you can just tell that she's really struggling. And I haven't seen a lot of her. But um, I saw her today for the first time in a long time. And I sort of gave, you know, I was doing laundry. I gave her the rest of the quarters I had in my pocket because I didn't need them anymore. But, uh, yeah, she's just like, you know, I try to check in with her, you know, say how you're doing, whatever. Um, how are things? You know, she reminds me about her son. And I don't know, you just try to talk to them like a human being for like five or ten minutes, you know what I'm saying? But the hard part is when you're interfacing with someone who's like living on the street, so much of their personality is, you know, life is incredibly fucking hard for them. I mean, unless you spent time with people who are homeless, I mean... I don't know, maybe as a thought exp- experiment you can imagine, but whether it's, you know, I, I think I mentioned my buddy, Dr. Bob, who was living in a bus who I got really close with a couple years ago. 
But after spending a lot of time with Dr. Bob and just seeing his life and just hearing what he has to, uh, you know, interface with on a daily basis, the dangers, also the, the, the population of people that are his peers, you realize, dude, these people are fucking, you know, they go through more shit just in the morning than most people do in their entire goddamn lifetime. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and even working on the crisis lines, you know, we have a lot of callers who are homeless, you know, telling us about their experience, which is, uh, it's really consciousness raising, you know, and until you sort of see it for what it is, you, you know, the, it just makes the, the stance that people say, why don't these people get a goddamn job? You know, it's, it becomes laughable. I mean, I, I guess I sympathize with the sentiment, but, um, until you know what somebody's really up against, you know, you don't know how misguided a statement like that is, I guess. But, um, yeah, just seeing her was very sad. And also thinking, like, what can I really do for this person? Do you know? I mean, I think about it when I think about my buddy, Dr. Bob, who's now relocated down to Santa Barbara County or whatever. You know, I just imagine, I mean, I don't know what's going on with him, but I imagine life is very hard for him. And, you know, you don't really see things changing for him. And Dr. Bob is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Um... I hope I've talked about him sufficiently that people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis will will know who he is. But basically, I was in my neighborhood. There was this guy living in a bus, a big school bus. Um, and uh, he and I became kind of close. I used to walk around town and like shoot photos. And I honestly don't remember how our friendship sort of started. But um, I think I like wanted to take a picture of his bus and ask him permission. And he and I started talking. And as I would see him and say hello, like one day he invited me up on the bus and we would like, you know, I was smoking cigarettes at the time. So, you know, he would ask me for tobacco or whatever. And I would end up just like sitting on his bus and chilling with him. And we ended up talking about the I Ching and we would get into all these conversations. And for a while, he was like a really important figure in my life. Do you know what I'm saying? And I, I mean, he, he told me as much that I was an important figure in his, you know, I mean, he was in kind of this spiritual kind of transitional place and, I was in this weird kind of spiritual transitional place in my life. And I think we both, I don't know, we saw ourselves as like two sides of this fucking coin. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we both had a lot of the same ideas about the world, but we both navigated it completely different, completely differently, obviously. And, but there was something like we could get together and talk. And I I don't know, we really saw eye to eye on a lot of things. And, um, and it was, um, I don't know, it was a special type of, a friendship, you know, it wasn't a friendship in the traditional sense, obviously, but it was a, it was a special type of, it was a special relationship in my life. And, you know, now that he's out of touch and I don't really know what's going on with him, I, I just, I feel concerned, you know? Um, but whether it's Dr. Bob or the woman that I see outside of the, um, the convenience store, I just think, you know, what can I do for this person? What can anyone do for these people or the people I interface with on the crisis lines? Like what can any one person really do? Do you know what I mean? And I know you could always think about things, right? Like, well, you could you could empty your savings account and give it to them, <laughs> you know, or you could build them a house or you could adopt them. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of things one could do. But practically speaking, what 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 is reasonable to ask anyone to do for another person? And it's an, un- it's an uncomfortable conversation for people to have, but I think a lot of times when you talk about these things, I mean, anyone who actually thinks about these things knows that it's a multidimensional decision. You know, for a lot of these people, it's addiction, it's mental health, it's um, trauma, 
um, it's it's you know s- systemic stuff, it's infrastructure things, it's resources, and these things. It's not you can't tackle any one thing in isolation. They're all sort of interwoven together. Do you know what I'm saying? You have a lot of people on the street because they've had incredibly traumatic histories and they have horrible families and no support system. And on top of that, they're dealing with mental health. And because they're on their, on the street, they're self-medicating with drugs and now they're drug addicted. And, you know, and even the people who want to get help, you know, what resources are available to them? You know, what does it take to get off the streets? Well, it's, it fucking takes a whole lot, you know, and a lot of times the systems that are in place to help people can be trauma inducing themselves. Have you ever talked to somebody who spent a night at a homeless shelter? what that experience can be like, especially for females. It's a fucking nightmare. You know, what about people battling mental health? Have you ever spoken with somebody who spent time at a psychiatric hospital? There's a lot of predators who work at those places. And no doubt there's a lot of people who are there for the right reasons. You know, you could even say most people are there trying to do the best that they can. But as you, as, as anyone sort of navigates these systems, there's no doubt that they do their, they, you know, it's its own, they, they come with their own problems as well. And, uh, you know, a lot of times they're just woefully insufficient to really help people. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with all that. God, it's a big bummer today. Yeah. And the, the hard part too is as I talk about these things, you know, I have some personal experience of, of knowing people in those situations, but I don't. You know, I have no solutions myself, you know, so even as I try to talk about it, I feel like I'm, I'm talking about something I literally, I literally know nothing about, and um, it's probably true. But when has that ever stopped me? <clears throat> yeah, I don't know why we're being all dark today. Actually, the last week's been pretty good for me. My girlfriend and I did archery on Saturday. I was joking with her. I said, what if I'm the type of person who like, once I start doing archery, I get really into it. And I start thinking, I, you know, I'm one of those guys who talks about, uh, philosophy, life philosophy in terms of archery. Do you know what I'm talking about? The guys who are like, um, you must aim at the truth, the way your arrow flies from the bow or some shit like that. But it was fun. I sent my brother a photo of it and he was like, oh yeah, I've been taking some archery too. And I was like, holy shit, Really? He's been, he's taken eight classes. I was like, God damn. You know, my brother also does Japanese sword fighting. And I'm like, dude, he's like a one man army between shooting a bow and arrow and fucking Japanese sword fighting. He's a, I'm fucking going to his place for the zombie apocalypse or the goddamn coronavirus, by the way, Jesus Christ. I guess they're saying it's not a matter of if the coronavirus, I mean, I live in Northern California. They're, They're saying it's here. So, uh, who the fuck knows what's going to happen? I feel woefully unprepared for it. But, uh, if shit really does go down and people start turning into zombies, I'm going to my brother's house. I feel like he could protect me. Had a, uh, I had an exam in chemistry at the end of last week on Friday. And, uh, dude, I felt so prepared for it. You know, I like this class because we've done a lot of worksheets. We drill stuff and sat down for the test. And I thought, man, I got this, you know. The minute he put the test in front of me, I looked at question one and I was like, what? You know, have you ever taken a test that, like, look, if I was a teacher, here, I, here's what I feel like should happen. You know, you should present the information. They should, you know, study the information. You know, maybe give them a worksheet, do some homework, or whatever. But the material on the test should look like what you've encountered in class. And I'm not saying you can't do it this way, but my least favorite thing that teachers do sometimes is they literally give you a test that you have to not only think 
on. I mean, really think. You know, they take all these disparate topics that you may know how to do in isolation, and they, they literally present them in a constellation that you actually haven't encountered them before, but you really need to demonstrate that you understand the information by actually, you actually take a test that you learn taking. The test itself is a lesson, you know? You have to actually think very hard about the question that's being asked, draw on the pool of knowledge of what you've been presented, and maybe make connections that you've never made before. On the test. Now, should that be illegal? No, I get it. You know, when that test gets put in front of me, it's like, you know, you prepare and part of being a smart person, and this is not just school, you know, understand people are like, why the fuck is this guy talking about school? Why the fuck would I want to listen to a podcast about a guy talking about school? Well, the point is that I'm hoping you can extrapolate these stories and the meaning of these stories to other areas of your life. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's like, as you go through life, you can't give 100% to everything. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like when you study, you, th- you know, yeah, you could literally, you know, and hey, if you can, phenomenal. But yeah, you could master every page of the chapter. Yeah, you could literally memorize everything. And then you'd be fully fucking prepared. True. But if you live a dynamic life, like most people do, like your boy works, your boy goes to school, your, guys, your boy also has other interests. You know what I'm saying? He, like, he likes doing this podcast for instance. And so for me, a good life means finding balance for all of those things. Do you know what I'm saying? And when it comes to studying, yeah, I could memorize 100% of everything. Or sometimes you have to work smarter, not harder. Do you know what I'm saying? And say, what is likely to be on this test? You know, what have I encountered frequently? What commonalities do I see between the lecture and the homework and maybe the quizzes or whatever that we've had in class and maybe some of the lab experiments we've done. You know, if I, if I had to bet, you know, I may not be right, but if I had to bet what's going to be on the test and you fucking study that shit, you know what I'm saying? And you just intuitively sense, oh, there's a couple things in the chapter that we've never talked about in class that are just, you know, likely to not be on the test. So a good way to spend my time would be to focus on the things that I'm very confident will be on the test. Do you know what I'm saying? And if I have time afterwards, maybe try to supplement my knowledge. But, and and that's, that's how you should go through life. You know, you may be wrong every once in a while, but you're going to be right more often and probably be better certain by it. So it's a good way to bet your time. But of course, you know, most people who've gone to school have always had that experience where you sit down and the test literally goes into the nooks and, and crevices of everything that has never been fucking touched on. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, Jesus, what a nightmare. You know, so I don't know how the fuck I did, man. It's one of those things where if I had to bet, I probably got a B. Do you know what I'm saying? But, you know, I feel like I'm one of the strongest people in the class. You know, I do you know, whether it's the worksheets or the homework, like I fucking, I nail it all. Do you know what I'm saying? I do well. And even I, like when we had 15 minutes left, I had to fucking rush through the end of the test. I had no time to check any of my work really. And even on one question that I had to go back to at the beginning, I had to make a random fucking guess on. And I mean, an educated guess I should say, but I had to guess on. And it's like, I saw people and I know people are just fucking blowing through the test, but it's like, you see people leaving beforehand and you're like, how the fuck is that person done? Do you know what I'm saying? Unless they're just fucking, you know, on their fucking bubble. Like it's one of these like Scantron, you know, fill in the multiple choice, fill in the bubble with a fucking number two pencil, all that sort of shit. They're fucking just uh, making stars and horseshoes on their goddamn Scantron. But, um, but, uh, 
Yeah, as someone who feels like they're, you know, one of the stronger stronger students in the class, yeah, to struggle that much, you think, Jesus Christ, I hope he grades on a curve. But, um, yeah, so I probably got a B. I may have gotten a C if I made some silly mistakes, but it's also not inconceivable that I got an A, so I'm hoping that's the case. Meanwhile, I had a math exam on Wednesday that I felt woefully unprepared for, and I was fully aware of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, trigonometry is, I mean, chemistry is difficult as well, but trigonometry is very confusing oftentimes. And I just knew, like, fuck, man, this this exam can be really difficult. You know, because I had a math teacher last semester when I was in, like, pre-calculus or whatever, and we used a different textbook, but it was by the same author. And in that class, I knew I had to do, all, you know, the, the teacher would assign, like, maybe all the odd problems from the book because the answers were in the back and you could check check against them. But I was like, damn, dude, to really understand this stuff, I have to do all of it. You know what I'm saying? And that's so that's what I did. And even then, I was like, damn, I'm not really sure I understand this. And when it came time to do the test, it was like, you fucking needed to know your shit. And so far in this class, we're using a similar book by the same author, and it covers a lot of fucking ground. But the lectures in class have been kind of sparse. He doesn't assign a lot of homework from the book. And it's been pretty easy so far. So I was like, damn, if he if he tests like my chemistry teacher where he's going into the fucking nooks and crannies, I'm fucked. So it's like as I'm sitting down for the test, I'm telling myself, this is the bed you made for yourself. Get comfy. I mean, in a way, it goes back to like being at the laundromat, right? Like, yeah, of course I'm frustrated. If I don't do all on this test, I'm going to be frustrated. But what the fuck can I really do about it? You know what I'm saying? It was my, I didn't prepare. I didn't prepare as well as I could have. So, you know, if I fucking do shitty, I'm just, it's just going to have to be a learning experience. Do you know what I'm saying? But, um, but thank Christ, dude, he put it in front of us and I just fucking blew through that thing. And I had plenty of time to go back and check my answers. I found some silly mistakes I had made, thankfully. But I really went through it and I was like, oh, and this was news to me, man. I sit down for the test and this kid, a really nice guy in the class, he tried to organize a study group that I had to fucking bow out of because, uh, because I don't, I, I do, who likes, dude, do people really like study groups? Aren't you like me that you just want to fucking do it on your own? Do you know what I'm saying? Like when we get together for a study group, we have to kind of share the time and maybe one person doesn't understand something that I understand and it's like, hey, I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on the shit that I don't understand. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. It feels like we're pulling each other in different directions, you know? So I don't know. It doesn't seem like a good way to spend my time, but this guy sort of sits next to me. We're, for, we're sort of jabber John before the test talking about things. And, and he's like, Hey, are you going to use an index card? And I was like, huh? And he's like, Oh, the teacher said that you can make an index card with whatever notes you can fit on it. And I was like, are you fucking shitting me? I had no goddamn idea, man. But then he says, yeah, but the teacher also said that if you don't use an index card, you'll get 10 extra credit points. And I was like, oh shit. Dude, what do you do in that situation? Is it, think about it. Is it smarter to use an index card and try to do as well as you can on the test proper? Or do you not use an index card, hope that you do well, and in the rare instance that you get one wrong, you get or whatever it is, you get the 10 extra credit points. So I, I did not use an index card. One, I didn't have one. I mean, I guess I could have made one very quickly. But uh, I, just, I just went for it, and I'm glad I did. Because I was like, dude, I may have gotten all these answers right. Plus, if I get 10 extra credit points, I'll get 110%. So we'll see. I feel unsure about one test. Let's see how I did. So for chemistry, I don't know how I did. Let's see how your boy does. On the other hand, I feel very confident about math. But let's see. 
you know? What if I get the, the chemistry exam back and I do fucking awesome and I get the math exam back then I'm very confident about I do terrible. But anyway, dude, even as I'm saying it, I'm going, oh, this is your boy's catastrophic thinking at work. What if I just do well? I mean, I guess the part of this whole thing that we didn't go into, I mean, I spend most of my life beating myself up. Do you know what I'm saying? I've told you that my girlfriend and I are reading this book called Too Perfect together. Every night we go to bed, we read about this. We read, I, I read like three or four pages out loud to her from this book on perfectionism. And mostly it's, it's work for myself, but I think we both tend to get something out of it. And it's like, I'm just so awful to myself all the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think as I'm sitting there, like about to take this math test, that I'm unprepared, it's going to be awful, and, you know, this is my just dessert. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm getting served a heaping, warm helping of humble pie, and it's exactly what I fucking deserve. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm a bad student. I didn't put in enough work. He puts it in front of me, and I'm like, zing, zada, zing, zada, zoom. Your boy understands it, you know what I'm saying? And I leave feeling great. And, uh, I don't know. It just goes to show you that you just don't know. You know, when you don't have all the information, like you just don't know what the test is going to be like till you get it, you know what I'm saying? And it doesn't mean that you don't prepare, and it doesn't mean that you just sort of rest on your laurels and decide that you're doing enough. You literally just don't have enough information. Until you see it, you just don't know how this person tests. Do you know what I'm saying? The first test is always like reconnaissance. You know, you're just gathering information. I mean, I deal with this on the crisis lines all the time. And it's it's something that's so easy. And in my life, I deal with this. You know, it's so easy to give this type of information or advice to other people. It's fucking impossible for me to apply to my own life. Which is tolerating the unknown. The not knowing is the most difficult part. And hearing other people's catastrophic thinking or doom and gloom scenarios. Um, you know, it's so easy for me to say, oh, we, well, we just don't know right now. You know, and that's difficult. You know, the hard part is not knowing, you know, and sitting with these difficult feelings for a time. That's challenging. Not knowing is very hard. But when I hear the, you know, when the, when, from my perspective, it, you know, it's, it's reasonable to be optimistic, you know. Given the totality of what you're telling me, it, it does feel reasonable to be optimistic for the time being. You know, so let's not tell our hor- ourselves horror stories in the interim. If it happens to be as bad as we expect, we'll, we'll cross that bridge. You know, but there's no need to crucify ourselves beforehand. You know what I'm saying? There's no, there's no need to start carrying the cross before the sentence is carried, before we're given the sentence. Do you know what I'm saying? But that's like the story of a lot of our lives. You know, we just go through our life telling ourselves horror stories. You know, I think this goes back to what I'm talking about, though. Why you know people think perfectionism is a virtue, but really it's just it's a personality problem. This book I've been reading. After he mentions the word perfectionism in the beginning, he abandons it. He uses the word obsessive. Because it really encapsulates what a perfectionist is. They're an obsessive. And a lot of times their obsessiveness actually keeps them from doing things. You know, if your thinking is catastrophic, if the benchmark you set for yourself is so high that it feels impossible to achieve, for most people that's a deterrent. Do you know? If before they enter a situation they assume it's going to be impossible, they usually shy away from the opportunity. Do you know what I'm saying? Whereas if your thinking is actually more reasonable... If you're kinder to yourself, if you give yourself the benefit of the doubt, you're likely to try more things and give your chance to self to succeed at things. You know what I'm saying? And it doesn't mean that you can't use your obsessiveness to your advantage. It can sometimes help you prepare well. 
it can help your performance if you're hard on yourself. But it's kind of like the treadmill that you use a lot. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I was thinking about this as I was, literally as I was leaving the BART station the other day, I was thinking about this. I remember watching this video of um, the composer Igor Stravinsky. Do you know who he is? He was a Russian composer. He wrote a lot of ballets. He wrote um, The Firebird, Petrushka. Um, the Rite of Spring is probably his most famous piece. Um, for some reason, I don't, think, I don't think a lot of people know this who casually listen to classical music, but there's this piece of his that's really famous that... I don't know. It's one of my favorites. It's called the octet for wind instruments. And Stravinsky in his early style, he wrote very modern music. Like if you listen to the rite of spring, it sounds very cacophonous. And in the past, you know, I've talked about a lot of 20th century music, like Arvo Peretz's early compositions and a lot of like Yanis Zanakis and a lot of, you know, 20th century classical composers who write cacophonous music. And for me, it's sort of fucking laughable. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, even Arvo Peretz, I love his later music, but his early music, you listen to it and it's kind of funny. I mean, he has one piece called Credo that's actually kind of a nice blending of the modern and the and the whatever that I can listen to. And there are composers who write in that style that I really enjoy, like Olivier, Olivier Messiaen. You know, I was stumbling because I, I know I'm not pronouncing it. Olivier, Olivier Messiaen, but I say Olivier, Olivier Messiaen. But, um, like, dude, where the fuck am I going with that? Um... Cacophonous composers, perfect. Oh, Stravinsky. Um, yeah, he has this piece called Octet for Wind Instruments, which is written in more of this like neoclassical style. But it's just, I don't know, it's always stuck in my head. It's very interesting. You should check it out. Um, but um, yeah, I saw this thing on YouTube. It was like some old footage of his. He was being interviewed by, um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. A very famous music writer um, and kind of an acolyte of Igor Stravinsky. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I saw this interview with him, and the the voiceover was basically saying, you know, Igor Stravinsky composes all the time, and he never takes a holiday. And for some reason, I was thinking about that as, as I was coming out of BART. You know, like, what does it take to be a genius? I think it's because I've been listening to a lot of jazz music, a lot of bop music, um, a lot of Thelonious Monk, specifically. Um, and, you know, I don't know that Thelonious Monk was really known for his drug use, but I think he's had a lot of, me- he had a lot of mental health problems. I don't know if he was schizophrenic, but I think he was probably what we would call bipolar, you know, but he suffered his mental, he, he suffered a lot in his mental health. you know what I'm saying? And, but I think as I was thinking about that, like, you know, these geniuses, these people that we lionize, you know, they tend to have this element of madness. Do you know? Like, I think it was Joe Rogan actually was talking about this, or I heard a clip of Joe Rogan talking about this. Like, there's a thin line between, uh, oh no, I think he said something like, it was actually pretty good. I think he said, genius and madness are neighbors and they're constantly borrowing sugar from each other or something like that. But it was like, you know, you, you find that a lot of the, the geniuses, a lot of the brilliant people, uh, especially in art and creativity that we sort of lionize, that we hold up as heroes, a lot of them had really difficult lives. Do you know? And a lot, of them, a, lot of, a lot of that was really an impediment to their success. Like as good as Jimi Hendrix was, there's no doubt that if he was sober, he would have been better. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not saying he was bad, but I just think in terms of navigating your life, isn't it pretty intuitive that if Jimi Hendrix was just sort of well-adjusted and uh, had the same level of talent that he would have accomplished a great deal? 
I mean, I guess I think of like, if you've ever gone to recovery, there's a lot of people there who are creatives. And a lot of them come around to this idea, like they thought like they romanticized their drug use. They thought that, you know, if they were shooting heroin, that they were like Charlie Parker. Do you know what I'm saying? Or uh, even smoking weed, you know, they want to be like Dylan or, you know, know, this, the the romanticism around drug culture. But when people actually get sober, they realize it was an impediment. Or dude, alcoholism is the perfect example. You know, people think of that whole Raymond Carver, um, wasn't Ernest Hemingway a fucking horrible alcoholic? But this idea that, like, you have to be kind of fucking tortured and mad to fucking be a genius, do you know what I'm saying? But most people who actually are creative, if they're being honest, they'd say their drug use is probably the biggest impediment to their success more than anything. Do you know what I mean? You know, and I think there's no doubt that people who do struggle with addiction finally get sober. They say their creative life is bloomed. Do you know what I'm saying? It takes, dude, it's kind of like perfectionism in that way. You know, we think perfectionism is is fueling us, you know, but really it's, we're, we're accomplishing what we do in spite of our perfectionism. Do you know, it's the same thing with drug use and creative people. Like they think the wellspring of their creative life is like the mental state that they're the the drug brings them to and i'm not saying that creativity doesn't come out of being intoxicated i mean when i was smoking weed i had great moments you know there is this feeling sometimes that your brain enters a sphere that you don't have access to otherwise and that does happen but on a long enough timeline everything happens do you know what i'm saying and the truth is is that even though there were good experiences while you're high it's so ephemeral I mean, there were plenty of times that I thought, oh, damn, I'm thinking shit I wouldn't have access to otherwise, and wow, this is great. But 99 times out of 100, that feeling stays in that moment. It, it, it's never um, communicated to a time of sobriety when I can actually focus and make make something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I remember I had this funny, I had this kind of, I, I don't know why these things stick with you, but I had this moment when I was younger where my half-brother was getting married. And he's my half-brother on my father's side. And, uh, you know, his mother had since been remarried. So I don't know what his stepfather, I don't know what you say, but basically my half-brother's stepfather was a piano player, jazz piano player, kind of a new agey sort of jazz piano player, Um, more Spyro Gyra than fucking Herbie Hancock, do you know what I'm saying? Or or more Spyro Gyra than fucking uh, Thelonious Monk, do you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> and um, and I remember at my half-brother's wedding, I remember we were sitting there, and my dad, and they were sort of sitting around. My dad is not an artist of any kind. Like, when he retired, he was like, I'm going to be a painter. And he bought a shit ton of paints and an easel and canvases and brushes. He never painted a goddamn thing. Like, he converted my bedroom into his art studio. He bought all the supplies. I'm confident a brush never touched a fucking piece of canvas. Do you know what I'm saying? And that makes perfect goddamn sense because, like, my dad is just not an artist. Like, when, like, people say, like, I meet artists all the time. And they're like, oh, I grew up in a musical household. Like, my friend Megan Slinkard's like, the perfect example of it. Like, she grew up loving the Beatles and, like, listening to music and digging through her dad's records and all that sort of shit. I, like, my dad listened to talk radio and that's it. He listened to conservative political talk radio and sports radio. It was fucking, is it The Jungle with... Not Dan Savage. Dan Savage is the fucking sex advice columnist. But whatever that fucking Savage dude on the jungle and fucking Rush Limbaugh. That was all my dad listened to. <clears throat> but, um, but, uh, 
dude what the fuck oh yeah so we were at my brother's half wedding and uh my dad's sitting around and he goes where you know where does um where does like a the idea for a song come from you know and my half brother's stepdad so leans back and in this kind of breathy you know sort of uh, he goes uh you know where does the idea for the sistine chapel come from you know it's just like ephemeral man and even as a kid i was like that's bullshit you know i was like oh that's a bunch of bullshit and it's funny as i'm saying it i don't know that that actually is bullshit but the point i'm trying to make is is you know people talk about creativity as if it's this sort of like ephemeral thing do you know and the more i think about it i think the source the wellspring it actually is kind of ephemeral and spiritual and you do have this sense that you're like you know, when I write a song, there's a sense that, like, it's fully formed in the cosmos somewhere. Like, have you ever seen, Willy, like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Or, I think the movie with Gene Wilder is Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. But there's that scene where they have the Wonka vision, where they, like, can zap something, and then it's trans, you know, it, it, you see it flying in bits in the air over to another location where it fucking rests. But you have this feeling when you get an inspiration for a song that you've been given a glimmer of something, and it exists... This, the song already exists fully formed and perfect in another dimension. And you're doing the best you can to sort of like transcribe it and, and as, as perfectly as possible recreate it in this world. You know, and it's never perfect. There's always something lost or it looks a little bit different. But there's that sense that the bits are flying in the air like the Wonka vision thing. And you're doing what you can to sort of pluck the right ones down and assemble it like a puzzle, you know, so that it you know, it approximates this, you know, there's like this platonic perfect version of the song in, in the realm of dimension or what do they call it? The, I don't know what the fuck it is. Somewhere in the back of the goddamn cave of Plato's fucking cave or something like that. But the, the, the perfect form of the song exists somewhere and you're doing everything you can to sort of recreate it in this world. Um, so, okay, maybe I can see that. Yeah, there is the, the ephemeral moment of inspiration, but Here's the point, and this goes back to the drug use and all that sort of shit. The moment, the initial lightning strike, who the fuck knows where that comes from? But the half-life of that is very fucking short. And after that initial wave, where you just get a, a your tenterhooks in an idea, the rest is hard work. Diligent, hard work. Do you know what I mean? Some people, you know, a song comes to them fully formed, but usually that's like one in a hundred or one in 500 or one in a thousand of the songs that you write come to, they seem to come to you fully formed almost. 99 times out of a hundred, the rest of it is just incredibly hard focused work. Do you know? Novels take a long time. Songs, for me, take a long time. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and so there's, there's this idea, you know, it actually makes sense when you think about it. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I wrote songs, but a lot of the, lot of the guitar work is improv, improvisatory. You know, it's improvisation. You know, it happens in the moment. Charlie Parker, jazz, a lot of these musicians who were doing a lot of heroin or drugs, it's largely improvisatory. It's improvisation. Do you know? And not that they, 
didn't spend years honing their craft, you know? But there comes a point where you've sort of solidified. The raw talent is certainly there. The initial skill set has been developed. And then maybe as you start hammering it out there, you become a professional, you become kind of lax in your discipline. But it's easy for that to happen because you've already, you've already kind of woodshedded and done all the hard work in isolation probably before your drug use really got a lot of traction. And now that you're successful and you have the chops and you have the skill and you're famous, that's when the drug use really fucking kicks in. You know what I'm saying? And in a way it can. And in a way you can, can, can continue to still be great in a lot of ways because what you're doing is ephemeral in the moment. You know, it's not like a novel takes um, consistent focus over a long period of time. You know, a jazz solo, you know, is 32 bars, maybe. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I've been watching a lot of video of Thelonious Monk on YouTube. He'll like play, and you would see Miles Davis do this too, but he'll play his part, and then when someone else is soloing, he'll leave the goddamn stage. Do you know what I'm saying? Miles Davis used to do this too. If you ever watch a video of Miles Davis, like especially late, like around the live evil bitches brew area, he would play... And then he'd fucking leave the stage. Do you know what I'm saying? Let everybody else take their goddamn solos. And then he'd come back. It's very bizarre. I think James Brown used to do that too. But, um... Anyway, I don't know if all that's true as much as I'm just speculating, but I think there might be something to that. You know, things that take consistent, hard work. Dude, maybe that's why Ernest Hemingway wrote mostly short short stories. (laughs) You know, it's that short short burst of focus. Like, I can... Anyway... Dude, I don't fucking know what I'm talking about anymore. The only point I'm trying to make is I think like perfectionism, there's this thing about drug use is where you think it's fueling your creativity, but you're actually accomplishing what you do in spite of this thing. Do you know what I mean? And the truth is, is that if you could probably sober up, you'd actually make the best work of your life. <clears throat> and not and not maybe what other people would evaluate as your best work, but what you f- you feel is your best work. You know, don't underestimate the gullible public's ability to champion shit. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, and I hate to paint people with this broad brush, except it's actually my favorite thing to do, but people celebrate bullshit. People are looking to be told what to like. Do you know what I'm saying? And if what's in is this sort of tortured aesthetic, people are going to read your shit, your shit books and tell everyone that it's great because they're supposed to like it. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think that's actually, I think that's why a lot of celebrities are tortured is because they're being celebrated and they know in their heart of hearts, they are living light years away of what their true self would find satisfying and fulfilling. Do you know? Like actors are celebrated for their performances, but they know that they spent most of the fucking day in their trailer and maybe shot for like five minutes. And the performance that people is celebrating is really like the amalgamation of multiple takes that were sort of spliced together. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> they know that the, what's being celebrated is really not them. You know, it's this simulacrum. You know, like really the the the, the Oscar for best actor. Should, you know, the the full time. You know, they say like best actor in a motion picture. It should really be like the best amalgamation of multiple takes. Uh, you know, the, the simulated performance by an actor over multiple takes that was cut together in an editing room by somebody else in a motion picture. Um, anyway, does this make sense? 
dude it's amazing we're almost we're kind of like near the end here like we're right on an hour now and it's like i feel like we blew through this goddamn podcast and i have no fucking idea what we talked about and i swear to goddamn christ i said this at the end of the last podcast i always sit down with stories that i want to tell i have one story in my mind I, i brought something up on another episode that i've been meaning to come back to for like four episodes now and by the time i get to the episode i just go oh yeah i completely forgot to talk about that and I'll literally tell myself like three seconds before I fire up the mics, hey, make sure you get to that story. And I never do. Dude, it's kind of funny to think, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we've kind of hit a weird rhythm on the podcast where I just sort of do them and put them up and, you know, that's what it's going to be. But I felt like when I, when I first started, I was so hyper conscious about what we were talking about and, you know, how was it going and was it funny, you know, and, and was it entertaining and all that sort of shit. And now I just fucking spew through them. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. I feel like I'm in, dude, it's, I mean, I always, I, I used to come back to running all the time. Now your boy doesn't fucking run. So of course I don't talk about running. I haven't run in like two months. Do you know what I'm saying? But dude, it's, it's episode 24. Dude, this mile 24 of the goddamn marathon. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm due for my second win, dude. We're going to fucking take off and sprint toward the finish here in a little bit. But right now, I'm just in that fucking... I'm out at sea, do you know? I'm in between coasts, you know? I, I'm looking back and I don't see land. I'm looking forward and I don't see land. We're fucking out there, dude. You know, I told you we're going to do 100 episodes of this podcast, man. And dude, we're about a quarter of the way through, you know? Woo! I mean, I guess since we're a quarter of the way through, we're still at that part where it would be, if we wanted to go back, we could, you know, but before long, we're going to look up and we're going to be at that point where, dude, it's just fucking quicker to keep going. Do you know what I'm saying? So, uh, yeah, was there, dude, there was no catharsis on this episode. I don't even know if the stories were good on this episode. We just sort of, uh, lily padded. You know, we fucking jumped from one lily pad to the next and, and got to the other side somehow. And this is a frogger of an episode. Do you know what I'm saying? We just sort of, we just sort of frogged it over. <clears throat> but hey, that's what some of the episodes are going to be. Um, what matters is that you keep listening and that you subscribe uh, wherever you want to. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, those are like, you know, the major platforms right now. Uh, if you want to, you can connect with our socials at thisismpod at this is m pod on instagram and twitter um and dude you know i've been posting clips of this show i'm posting the full episodes and clips to youtube but i think in the next couple weeks i'm just gonna create my own channel i think i'm pissing people off who listen to my music i think all the people you know i think i got about four thousand subscribers on youtube I, i think i'm pissing those people off by literally posting a video of the podcast every day so i think i'm gonna switch over to another channel so um stay posted for that otherwise thank you for listening um and yeah stream my playlist gentleman caller look up m the air apparent on spotify that's the letter m the h-e-i-r apparent on spotify and stream uh the featured playlist there called gentleman caller okay that's it folks thanks for tuning in thanks for listening appreciate your support appreciate you uh checking in every week and listening to these stories um it really means the world to me it's the best part of my week i was looking forward to it all week it finally happened i literally was going to bed last night going yay tomorrow i get to do the podcast yay so damn i can't wait till next week when we, when we can do it again so thanks for listening appreciate your time and ciao for now